0: So earlier this week, NASA, I think once again, has announced that uh, water has been discovered on uh, Mars. Now, what I say once again. Uh, I mean, uh, this this announcement has, has been made, I think, a couple of times uh, within the last uh, uh, 10 years ago. But I, I guess that this is the first time that they have said uh, water has been discovered on the surface of Mars. Right.
1: I think they're saying it's liquid water or evidence of liquid water having moved on the surface. Um, but, you know, the thing is, it, it, to to me, the whole... So-called announcement is not just anticlimactic. It's it's basically a way of saying, "Okay, now we're going to allow you to say that Mars has water. <laughs> we, we're we are going to permit you, the people, to say that." You know, it, it's it's t- it's totally bogus. Um, back in the nineties, I did a, a, a cover for Fate magazine, did mm-hmm. the cover art that showed water on Mars because at the time, photos had surfaced not just with the so-called glass tunnels on Mars, which look like you know, some sort of nuclear uh, m- glass melt structures. Um, not only that, but they, at the time, photos were circulating that showed water on Mars. And this was in the 90s, and these photos had been taken even, maybe even a decade or two earlier. Uh, showing puddles uh, and and what looked like uh, bodies of water, from you know, as seen from, from other uh, things that have been set up there. So you know, it's not like this is a big mystery that there's water on Mars, right? But you know, you you think that they would want to talk about you know the the very obvious fragments of debris <laughs> that are not natural formations <laughs> that are all over that planet.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: I mean, you know, there there are shapes and forms on, on the surface of that planet that there's no way in in. No way that the, that those were formed by wind, you know, or erosion, or you know, they're you know uh, manufactured things, and and so the hope to come out and say, oh, gee, now we it's okay that you, for you just for you all to say that there's water on Mars because we say that we can now say that we've found evidence for water on Mars. No, that evidence was found twenty five thirty years ago. It, you know, it, I, and that's exactly the kind of thing I expected when they started talking about. They had a big announcement. They had a big announcement. You know, I figured it was going to be something like, "Oh, we found evidence of a water, piece of water ice inside of a rock," or you know, it's close enough. It's something just basically anticlimactic.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh
0: well, I, was, I mean, they they discovered uh, um, ice, water ice underneath the uh, the the surface. With the, um, gosh, what, what were they called? It was the Phoenix. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, probes.
1: Well, they've been watching the, the poles. You know, yeah. the poles have, uh, both water and other types of ice. Um, you know, frozen stuff. And it, it became obvious that those poles were growing and shrinking, growing and shrinking. Um, you know, with the seasons. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have to wonder when, when I see this, I have to wonder about the color. Of the, of the images that were that were shown, because I have seen images that purport to show the true color of Mars with blue skies. Right. right. Um, yeah. And so you have to wonder if there's not some sort of a snow job going on, because that's a prime piece of real estate. <laughs>
2: they
1: say we do blow this one up or screw it up totally. You know. Um, well, yeah, I,
0: Mars. Mars is the closest. Uh, I mean just I mean you can't i mean it's not really habitable but habitable, but it would no. be the easiest planet to you know to live on it, under, so we we know, could top. terraform it we could terraform it, oh, but that would take oh my gosh, that would take centuries,
1: maybe I mean if you think about this. There are certain types of algae and, and other uh, plants that thrive under the, exa- the exact same conditions that exist on Mars. Mm-hmm. So if you were to just consistently bombard it and seed it with these things, and these things make oxygen, the, the biggest problem Mars has is they, according to the latest theories, is it does not have a, a molten iron core. So it cannot uh, generate enough of an electro- electromagnetic field, and its gravity is smaller. -hmm. So it has a hard time holding on to an atmosphere. Right, right. So when you, you know, when you have an atmosphere there, it it wouldn't take much, even if it's a stable atmosphere, to not to to suck it off into space, Mm -hmm. you know, or have something happen that 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 causes that to happen, like like a big asteroid strike or something. Um, So who knows? I mean, I I just find the whole idea of them coming out and telling us what we already knew to be Ridiculous. (laughs) ridiculous
0: <laughs> well uh yeah but with this announcement also i mean now now comes the the speculation and i mean you know there's uh, it 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 really falls now more into the realm of probability that if you have uh, a water on the on the surface i mean even though it is uh really salty and uh and rich in uh, uh, fairly hazardous uh, minerals but, yeah but still uh, uh you've got the same kind of conditions here on earth and you know life teems in water like that
1: yeah exactly and and a lot,
0: and, and a lot hotter too
1: in, in very hostile environments yeah very,
0: yeah, yeah, very hostile
1: you know, so yeah i, I think that Life is ubiquitous, you know, throughout the universe, in one form or another. So, you know.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, it's gonna it's it's gonna find a foothold, I think, no matter where you go, you know. But uh, and and, you know, and and I still, I mean, the the picture that was taken a couple of months ago that seemed to show that uh, like a like a crab or spider-like creature nestled in a uh, kind of a uh, um, indentation in a rock.
1: Yeah, that was pretty obvious, wasn't it?
0: Out of all the stuff that I have seen on Mars, the pictures that have come back, that is the one. That is the one picture that has me going, "Wow!" You know, because the rest of them, with the, you know, I mean, there, I mean, there, there's some pyramids that uh, that they've taken pictures of, and you know, naturally they're like, "Oh well, those are just natural formations." <laughs> and I'm like, "Wow, really?" <laughs> But as for something that looks like it's actually alive or could have been alive, I mean, I suppose it you know—it it could have been a fossil or something like that.
1: It looked alive. It looked like something that had expanded out of a shell.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very much so. And uh, so, I mean, I, I think that uh, um, Mars has a lot more su- surprises in, in, in store for us. And, you uh, know... <laughs> I don't know, it's, it, it, it's kind of a situation where you would think that if NASA did have absolute proof that there was life on Mars, um, that they would go an announcement, because, I mean, you know, of course now my line of thinking would be that if you made an announcement like that, then they would have a case to uh, um, to petition for more money, in order to get up there and study it a lot more closely, uh, but then again, other people, you know, have reminded me that uh, there are a lot of people in this country that that prospect absolutely terrifies them. That yeah, the, that the yeah. idea that we are not alone, that that we are not, you know,
1: um, well, you know, the religious chosen ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, especially, I mean, that's that bothers me because you know these people claim to be Christians. But if they read their bible, you know, it says that uh, uh that Jesus, you know, as the as the the personification as the word was just to say the initiating creative force. It says for by him were all the worlds created him and for him they were created. Um so, you know, That's saying worlds, worlds plural. Mm -hmm. People will say, well, that just means the world of the dead. No, it doesn't. He's talking about worlds. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like when he ascended, he said, in my father's house, there are many mansions or there are many houses. If if it were not so, I would have told you or or something to that effect.
0: Right. right, Uh, right. No,
1: he said, no, he said, I go now to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there there may you be also. That's what he said. So when you, when you look at, at these things and then you look at the Old Testament, And the New Testament both. And it talks about the throne of God and the presence of God. And it says he's surrounded by these beings, which are some sort of seraphim and things of this nature. And it it says, it calls them living creatures.
2: Hmm.
1: It says, for the living creatures had this, and the living creatures did that. You know, it doesn't say that they're spirits. It doesn't say that they're, that they're, you know, some nebulous uh, concept or whatever. It refers to them as Living creatures. Now, that's that's in that very word. You know that these that these people take so literally. So you know, if you're going to take that word literally, take it all. You know, don't just pick and choose. And of course, that, that happens a lot. So oh well, yeah.
0: <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, I uh, I I really hope uh, within my lifetime that uh, that we'll see you know the the uh, the discovery of of life on mars and and other places i mean within within the solar system i'm keeping my i'm keeping my fingers crossed but uh you know at uh, at one time i had hoped that uh, when i was younger that maybe they uh, you know somebody would uh uh you know make make the discovery on the actual you know reality of uh, ufo's and things like that and oh yeah yeah look how far that's come along <laughs> So, you never know it may it may be the same way with uh with mars and and you know uh, other continued uh, uh, explorations or even man manned explorations of the solar system so well um why don 't we uh, let's let 's talk a few minutes here before we go to our uh, break uh, Mike with uh, talk about our guest our guest tonight is uh, Jason uh, Gerald and uh, he has uh, actually been uh, researching uh, you know ancient unknown um archaeological um presence here in uh, in north america and uh, has been uh, uh, you know, investigating um, um long forgotten archaeological sites and uh, uh, especially in the uh, dense uh, mountains regions of uh, West Virginia. And uh, so he is starting to, to, to come out now and, and talk more and more about his theories on uh, ancient America, uh, the possibility that there was a, uh, a race of, uh, of giants that lived here, uh, especially, you know, like the uh, gigantic skeletons found in burial mounds. Uh, he's uh, he's been published in um, uh, Ancient America magazine, and I'm not uh, I'm not sure, but we may be one of the uh, the first shows to actually have him on. So hmm. uh, yeah, I'm really uh, I'm really happy that uh, we're able to uh, well uh, uh, to yeah. get
1: him on. Yeah, it sounds like his his field of study is something we have we both have a big interest in. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him
0: you know it's all it's it's always nice to hear somebody who uh is is just uh um you know kind of you know, he's not he's not exactly new to the field but uh kind of like uh, uh, some young blood so to speak and uh you know somebody who maybe can come in and uh you know offer some uh, some new ideas uh and uh, um you know just a, um, um a, a different uh, a different take on things We'll see. We'll have to
1: ask Yep. <laughs> yep. Sounds good. Sounds All right. good. Well, man.
0: let's let's go ahead and, and we'll go to our uh, break. And when we come back, our guest will be Jason Gerald here on the Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. So stay tuned and we will be right back.
1: It is about the implementation of the Mark of the Beast. I spoke to you about that, I think, two weeks ago. Revelation
3: chapter 13, verses 16, 17, and 18. And he calls it all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hands. For in their foreheads, that no man might buy or sell,
1: say he hath the mark or the name or the number of the beast. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of the man.
4: He and six. said Halloween 2012, just about to set some healthy slices across the jugger's. Before we we pull back the veil, that's where it gets thin. Feel that knife along the side of his ribs and crawl inside his skin
5: conspiracy journal is your number one source for the hidden world of the weird and strange we bring you thought-provoking and controversial material for free-thinking individuals who are seeking what is really going on in our world today some of this material may adversely affect you other pieces are meant to enlighten Either way, be prepared to be intrigued by such things as the reality of UFOs, ghosts, strange creatures from time and space, hidden conspiracies, time travel, Nikola Tesla, suppressed technology, and a whole lot more. You can find out more by visiting our website at conspiracyjournal.com. There, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter sent directly to your email address. You can also receive our free print catalog. Just send your name and mailing address to Mr.UFO8 at Hotmail.com. I'll spell that out for you. M R U F O, the number 8, at Hotmail.com. Mr. U F O 8 at Hotmail.com. Find out what they don't want you to know.
4: Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street!
1: It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstopwrecks.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council.
4: So, Jacqueline. Yes, Mom? I wanted to talk to you about something and... Oh, wait. Hold on. I just got a text. Oh,
3: there's another one. Wow. Busy, busy me. So, anyway... Oh, wait, Mom. I just got a message. My friends keep commenting on my comment.
4: Oh, there's another one. So many comments on my comment. Oh, I can't wait to watch TV tonight. Playoffs! Hey, guys,
5: check out my new video game.
4: Wait, wait, Mom. What? What? what did you say? Wait a second. What? This weekend, unplug. Take your family to the forest. There's nothing in the world like experiencing nature firsthand.
1: Trees, paths, bluebirds, streams. Getting closer to nature can get you closer to your family. To find the forest nearest you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Eye Council.
4: You're listening to the Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz, only on PSN Radio.
0: edge you're listening to us on the psn radio network i'm tim schwartz with me tonight of course is mike mott and i'd like to welcome our guest jason gerald jason it's uh, really great to
1: have you with us tonight
3: well it's a real honor to be here thanks for bringing me on
1: well we were just talking about uh about your research and stuff and uh, it sounds like you have um you're one of of, of Of many people who I guess selectively few though who have stumbled upon the the mystery of uh, North American giants and how they tie into the idea or the concept of the Nephilim
3: that's right Um, probably six years ago if it's going on six years ago now uh, my wife and I were we were at a a rally actually because back then we were political activists and um, we ran into some people who told us about some supposed gigantic skeletons that have been unearthed in the town where we lived, and some megalithic ruins that were supposedly still intact? And we were just fascinated, so we began an investigation. And here we are six years later, and we're ready to produce some literature and produce some results. And uh, we we actually go out into the field. We have a small team of people. That they, they go with us to forgotten archaeological sites. Uh, some better known sites. We've investigated sites in West Virginia, Ohio, and Kentucky. And we've also reviewed as much archaeological literature as we possibly can for, from the 20th century and also from the antiquarians of the 1800s. And it's become our goal to not only document that these gigantic skeletons were found, but to place them back into the historical narrative so people can understand the impact that their presence actually had on world history.
1: Right. Well, they weren't just physical giants, they were mental giants.
3: You are absolutely right. The, um, the, these beings, they represented an elite class, in the societies where they're found. And a lot of people have the misconception that they conquered through brute strength. I've seen a lot of illustrations on the Internet and in different places where the giants are portrayed with these large swords and axes. And they did have some large axes. There's one from Ohio that weighed 39 pounds. But the way that they conquered was through resource management. And that's the case... Whether we're talking about Mesopotamia or yeah. Russia or Western Europe or North America.
0: So now, uh, before before that time, I mean, did you have any interest at all in uh, ancient uh, uh, archaeology or, or uh, you know, ancient history uh, here in the United States?
3: Well, absolutely. I've, personally, I've been studying the Nephilim, the Nephilim concept from a biblical perspective for about 17 years. Uh, but the issue with North America was that most of the giant accounts that I had seen up to that point were the kind that usually just get republished without many details and I really didn't know what to think about a lot of those. So when we started to to get on this trail locally here in the Kanawha valley we decided to go on and invest in archaeological literature and actual reports to see if there was any trace in mainstream sources of these beings and they are present in mainstream sources Mm -hmm. when you hear an anthropologist or an archaeologist say that there's no evidence that these beings were ever found they're not just ignorant; they're lying to you because yeah, yes, mainstream sources have documented them.
1: Hmm. Yeah, they're they're lying, and and then I just lying There's there's been an active cover up, um, you know, with the uh, absconding of artifacts and things of this nature. So for a long time.
3: Well, the the issue of the cover up it, it goes back to the very beginning of the Smithsonian Institution. Um, And the way to detect a cover-up is to take a look at the people involved, and that's that's something that even any police investigator will tell you. Um, One of the most famous names in the history of American archaeology is E.G. Squire, the co-author of Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley, published in 1848, which represented the first major survey of the Smithsonian Institution. And what most people don't know is that Squire himself was actually a diplomat and a businessman. He was not an archaeologist. And after doing the research for ancient monuments, he actually sold all the artifacts to the highest bidder. Mm. Those artifacts were not curated. Uh, They were not preserved for scientific analysis at the Smithsonian. They were sold for $10,000 to Lord William Blackmore of the Blackmore Museum at Salisbury, England. And in 1931, they went to the British Museum. And the minimum estimate I've seen is that this package represented 6,000 artifacts, and some estimations are as high as 10,000.
1: Wow. Hmm. That's still a lot. I mean, mean, it's a lot either way. So, So here's the question. Once they go into some place like the Smithsonian, the British Museum, what happens to them?
3: The, well, in (laughs) 1879. Yeah. Mm. Well, the, the, the artifacts and the mounds and earthworks in North America, when they were observed by the early antiquarians, who were actually the first archaeologists, The early antiquarians, they were capable of understanding what was right in front of their faces. And they compared these mounds and earthworks and the artifacts to those that were found in Western Europe that today are ascribed to the Bell Beaker culture, the mound builders of Western Europe. Now what happens is, in the mid-1800s, the Smithsonian comes onto the scene and starts promoting a theory that today we would call isolationism. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: That's the anti diffusionist theory, the idea that no one ever crossed the Atlantic Ocean. And at the time, this theory, the, the people that had actually been researching these cultures, they wholly rejected this theory. They thought it was absurd because it was so obvious that there were ancient globalizations present in the prehistoric ruins here. And in 1879, when J.W. Powell became the head of the Bureau of Ethnology at the Smithsonian, he circulated a document internally, and that document was called On Limitations to the Use of Some Anthropologic Data. And this document laid out the rules for excavation of mounds and interpretation of remains in North America to the agents of the Smithsonian. And he claimed, in this document, that any discoveries which hinted at pre-Columbian contact would be considered illegitimate and should be discarded. Mm. So in the wake of that, we're left to wonder how many artifacts we actually know about from America's right. prehistory.
1: Well, even, even I believe, it, wasn't it Thomas Jefferson wrote about the, the remains of giants? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so...
3: Well, the, the, the gigantic skeletons that, that people talk about today, th- these skeletons were so common to find in the 1800s and, and the 1900s that no one really questioned that they existed. Yeah. They were on display in numerous museums. In fact, the, the Tioga Point Museum in Pennsylvania, they had multiple giants on display between six and seven feet tall for decades the Grave Creek Mound Museum that used to be in at the Grave Creek Mound in West Virginia they had a 7 foot tall skeleton on display there that was actually wired together for decades so the American people for a long time they, they had no reason to question what was being found uh, the, the anthropology of these beings is very interesting and it's, it's there in the archaeological literature they had Extremely high skull vaults, they were brachycephalic with a cranial index of 89 and some reaching 100. The upper and lower jaws were prognathic, powerful, they're very wide with a bony chin, they had large cheekbones with forward and lateral prominence, right. the forehead was very prominent with very prominent brow ridges, and even supernumerary teeth were recorded for these skeletons. Right. Uh the The old newspaper accounts and local histories will mention that these skeletons had extra teeth, and I think it's very interesting that uh, mounds like the Dover Mound in Kentucky, the Wright Mound, even the Price 3 old copper culture site produced skeletons with supernumerary teeth. Hmm.
1: Wow, that's wild! And you know that's one of the traits of the of the, of the biblical Nephilim. They had uh, extra rows of teeth, and they had extra digits on hands and feet. And many of these skeletons are the same.
3: the The biblical Nephilim. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that because a part of our work, we decided early on that we wanted to trace the phenomenon of mound building around the world through the past, and mound building is not something that every culture on earth just decided to do. The creation of ceremonial earthworks and burial mounds, it is not a universal tendency of every culture in the distant past. I've, I've seen a lot of papers that suggest that, but it simply isn't true. And mound building, as we understand it, with the types of cultures here in North America, actually got underway in ancient Mesopotamia. In fact, the biggest mound field on earth has over five hundred thousand burial mounds, is located on the island of Bahrain in the Persian Gulf. And that mound field was the burial ground for the dynastic Mesopotamian rulers going back to the Uruk period of ancient Mesopotamia. And the name that the Mesopotamians had for that island was Dilmun which means paradise. And ironically, the name given to this mountain-building culture in North America, Adena, is a Hebrew word which also means paradise.
2: Hmm. hmm. Interesting.
0: So now, do you um, do you see evidence then that uh, the uh, uh, the giant race that lived here? in North and, and possibly South America uh, that there was also uh, a giant uh, maybe of the same ilk living in the uh, the, the old world as well?
3: Absolutely. Um, the way that, it, that history reads from the perspective that we're presenting it is sometime between 4000 B.C., In 3500 B.C., there was an expansion from out of ancient Mesopotamia, and archaeologists refer to this as the Uruk Expansion. You can look into this. It's fascinating. And this was a time period when the, the powerful elite in Mesopotamia began expanding their influence around the Old World. And they were present in Syria and Turkey, Iran, and they were also present in the Caucasus region. And the colonies that were established in the Caucasus region are known archaeologically as the Mycop and Yemnaya cultures.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: And these cultures were burying their dead under conical burial mounds in subsurface tombs with red ochre. And what happens historically is that around 3100 B.C., the Earth expansion collapsed. And the archaeologists write about this event and how many of the colonies and enclaves are suddenly abandoned, and they can't figure out where all the people went. Well, it's very interesting that at 3,000 B.C., that's within 100 years of the collapse, The European mound-building culture, known as the corded ware culture, which buried their dead under conical mounds and used red ochre in the burials, appears in Europe. Hmm. And some recent DNA tests that have been done in Europe on the remains of this culture have decisively proven that at that time period, the corded ware culture had come, their their genetic package, their haplogroups had come from Mesopotamia.
2: Hmm.
3: So we know that in the distant past, there was an empirical expansion around the world, and at the point of its collapse, these cultures began moving and carving out their own territories around Europe. And a second culture, which appears at that time period, At around 2900 B.C. in Western Europe, it's called the Bell Beaker culture. And the the Bell Beaker culture expanded through Western Europe. They appeared in France and the British Isles. They originated from the Iberian Peninsula. And in the Rhinelands, they encountered the Corded Ware mound builders, and they merged their culture so that... At around 2300 B.C., the entire region that today is occupied by the European Union was occupied by different variations of a single culture. Hmm. And it's our hypothesis that the mound-building cultures in North America were a North American expansion of that same phenomenon.
0: Well, now the bones that were uh, that that have been found in in Europe associated uh, uh, with these mound builders, I mean, are they are they giants? Are they normal sized people? Uh, I mean, I, I I don't know if I've I've heard if uh, you know like any of these um, uh, remains have been uh, reported as being you know any larger than you know normal size.
3: Well, that's a great question, and um, I'm really glad you asked that question, because when people talk about gigantic skeletons from burial mounds, what they're actually talking about is a select few from the population. Mm-hmm. These This was an elite group. The entire population of the Adena culture in North America or the, the Bell Beaker culture in Europe were not all giants. We're talking about the elite lineages within those cultures. And there is a large percentage of skeletons found in the mounds in Western Europe as well who were reaching seven, eight feet tall. There are, there's a high concentration from France that reached seven foot tall, eight feet tall, and there's one specific example that was somewhere between 10 and 12 feet tall. Wow. And what's really interesting is I can offer you a couple of uh, a couple of descriptions here of these European mound builders. And this one comes from 1908, and this was published in Nature magazine, volume 77, and it's a description of one of these European skeletons. And it reads exactly like the newspaper accounts so frequently encountered describing North American skeletons of this nature. And the account reads, Those of this type were taller and much more powerfully built than the Aborigines. They had massive jaws, strongly marked features, enormously prominent brow ridges and foreheads, countenances which must have been stern and brutal. Yeah. They combined harsh features with narrow heads, and their stature was often great. Now, that description would fit right in with many of the accounts of North American giants that so many people are finding today in publishing.
1: Well, I have a couple of questions about that, because you, you talked about um, both North America and Europe, but, you know, uh, two, two thoughts come to mind. The first is that the Romans encountered some of these giants in, in northern Europe. When they first started expansion into northern Europe, uh, they wrote about encountering these guys that were eight feet tall. Um, right. Which were supposedly Germanic tribes.
3: Right. Um, that's another great question. <laughs> um, we're we're going to get into the realm of cultural succession, which is actually our specialty. um the expansions of the the different mound-building groups throughout Europe that I mentioned before, it actually started a chain of cultures which lasted for over 2,000 years. Uh, For example, in Poland, Germany, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic, this expansion created what's called the Unitas culture, and that begins at about 2300 B.C., And that cultural entity alone continued in various forms into the Iron Age. It took the form of a culture known as the Tumulus culture between 1700 and 1200 B.C., the Urnfield culture of 1300 B.C., and then as we get into the Iron Age, these people created what's known as the Hallstatt and Latin cultures, and these are the classic Keltoid that you're referring to. Right. And they were genetically descended from the earlier expansions from Mesopotamia and the Iberian Peninsula.
1: Right. So, so are you, do, you, for, do you think that people today of, say, Celtic descent or, or Germanic descent or to some extent somewhere still related to some of these gigantic uh, Nephilim peoples?
3: I believe that there are people today who are related to these gigantic cheats, these gigantic elites from prehistory. But they are not people among the basic population. Right. They're they're behind the the scenes. Well, the gigantic elite, even if you look at the Roman histories and study some of their other descended cultures like the Scythians, you'll find that Especially among the Celts, the elites remained isolated from breeding with the rest of the population. In fact, a lot of the Celtic and Scythian populations were peoples of other descent. So these elites had a way of embedding themselves in a society and building cultures around themselves. Right. And that is precisely what they did in North America.
1: Yeah. So sure, the, leg- the legends also indicate that they may have been dependent upon human beings, human females specifically, in order to continue their lineage. Even if it was only like every other generation or something, they they had to have a fresh influx of, of human because they're a hybrid race. So they had to have, you know, a regular return to the fountain to keep themselves going.
3: Well, that's that's an excellent point because <clears throat> Some of the accounts in North America, uh, for example, in Collins' historical collections of Kentucky, there's a discovery from 1872 of a 10-foot tall skeleton. And the book details that it was measured with the long bone, so it was, it was properly measured. But this skeleton was not found in a burial mound. It was found six feet below the flat surface by coal prospectors. Uh, another example of this is from the Marion Daily Star in 1902, a skeleton was found nine feet tall with two distinct rows of teeth, and it was found deep in a sandbank. And one of the aspects of our research is we review these old accounts looking for artifacts that may be mentioned and burial types that may be mentioned so that we can place these giants in the proper cultural context. And most of these extremely large skeletons over nine feet tall are in subsurface flat burials. And that's very important, because in North America, that's describing the archaic burial cult that's known variously as the red ochre or glacial cane cult. So in response to what you said about the inbreeding with, with human females, it may be that the reason that so many of the skeletons that are found in the mounds are somewhere between 7 and 9 feet tall, and so many of the flat grape skeletons are 10 feet tall and over, is because at some point they were breeding with the human population and they began to lose some of their height.
1: Right, exactly. And when you think about this, too, I mean, there are legends all over the world that talk about, you know, these these giant humanoids, uh, whether you want to call them, Trolls, or or whatever you want to call them, but they have the same traits as the to describe Just have multiple digits, double rows of teeth. Sometimes they have like uh, uh, rudimentary horns, things like this. But they have a fascination. They they want some some human. Uh, they want some human loving. That's what that's what they're after. And don't and we the, all? Hey, there you go. But but the thing the thing about these guys is supposedly, according to various ancient traditions, if they didn't get uh, the influx that they needed. They, they They. become more, you said brutish earlier, that's a good word, more brutish, more uh, subhuman in appearance, which leads us to my next question. Do you think it's possible that giant hairy humanoids seen in North America today are descended from these same
3: beings? Well, if, if you're talking about uh, concepts like the Sasquatch, Right. That's, that's a subject that I can't claim to be an expert on, but it's, it's funny you mention it because just yesterday I was contacted by another researcher who was talking to me about the, the types of skulls that we're studying and how similar they are to some of the, the supposed encounters with Sasquatch. And if I was to, if I was to speculate, I would Suggest that it's always possible for some type of subspecies to persist. There are creatures all over this planet that man discovers every year. We discover new species of creature or plant.
1: Well, you know, the the problem we have with that, though, is that it's the size of Sasquatch or Bigfoot-type creatures um, would require significant... In order to have a breeding population, you would see them more often than you do because they would out, be out foraging for food more often and they would come in more and more into contact with people. Whereas when you study the Sasquatch phenomenon, you you find out that these beings are not stupid. They're not animals. They're probably smarter than we are. That's why we never find they're dead. Um, they, they, they're very good at, at, at doing just what they've come to do and then leaving. Um, at the same time, you go back and read the book of Enoch, you know the uh, the apocryphal book, in he was three forms, and it talks about the origin of the Nephilim and the, those who were their fathers, and the fact that they mixed the species together. Um, they created the Nephilim themselves, and they created another group, which is generally translated the word is translated as monsters. But this other group was a combination of of human, uh, the the fathers and different animal species. So, you know, who knows? I mean uh at the same time if they are a hybrid species and they don't get the um the regular human genetic influx that they need as often as they need, then other traits are going to become more dominant. Does that make sense?
3: Well absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned the book of Enoch because the the Book of Enoch actually has great relevance to actually a lot of the things that can still be discovered today with regards to these cultures. The, the fallen beings that are described in the Book of Enoch, they teach the, the wives and the children, their offspring. It says that they teach them metallurgy, and they teach them how to make signs in the earth. And yeah. the, the cultures we were talking about earlier were essentially the origin of the Bronze Age. Yeah. The Bell Beaker people introduced metallurgy into Western Europe. The cultures here in North America, when when they arrived in North America, they essentially took over the old copper culture from about 2500 BC. And the signs in the earth are all over the landscape of Western Europe and North America in the form of these earthworks and and circular hinges. So even the finer details of the Book of Enoch can be demonstrated from from that perspective yeah yeah that's true
0: so the question the question that I have is and I, and I realize that this is a you know it, it's fairly new technology, but has anybody done any uh uh DNA study studies on these uh, uh giant bones and the, the question that that I'm wondering is whether these giants especially you know like the more archaic ones that that were you know 10 feet tall and, and more whether or not they were uh, uh homo sapien sapiens or whether or not we're talking about a you know like a a, a cousin species uh, uh that uh you know like neanderthals or what's the other the, the denosians um uh, you know any ideas <laughs>
3: Actually, we've investigated that, and there is, in our opinion, it appears that there is a definite attempt to avoid doing DNA tests specifically on the individuals who had these gigantic elites among them. In North America, these people are called the Adena people. And if you were to go back and read the works of William S. Webb and Don Dragu from the 20th century, you would find that there was most definitely a distinct Adena physical type, and they considered them to be a distinct race from other cultures like the Hopewell. And the DNA tests that have been done on mound builder remains in North America, they're done exclusively on Hopewell remains. No one has attempted to exclusively test the remains of a specifically adenous skeleton, let alone one of these gigantic skeletons, to determine their line of descent, their haplogroup clusters. Um, and, in fact, what's interesting to me is that the Hopewell remains that have been tested genetically, one group came from the Hopewell farm site in Ohio, and this site had remains from Hopewell and Adena people. And the Hopewell remains were the ones that they tested. At the the other group of Hopewell remains that have been tested came from the Peter Clunk Mounds in Illinois. And the Peter Clunk Mounds were built over an archaic graveyard that it may go back to 3,000 or 4,000 B.C., but again... They exclusively tested the Hopewell remains. And so, no, the, the answer is someone simply does not want to run DNA tests on a Dena remains.
0: Hmm. Well, I mean, to but me... If, oh, go, ahead, go ahead, I'm sorry.
3: Well, I suspect that a lot of the skeletons actually turned to dust when they were found. We have some of the, the field notes of some of the smithsonians excavating agents it's the handwritten diary that was kept in the field in in the 1800s while they were digging these giant skeletons out of the mounds and it it mentions some of the gigantic skeletons one is seven foot six it comes from charleston west virginia from a mound called the great smith mound and the excavator notes that they attempted to preserve the skeleton but it It crumbled to dust. Mm. But what's interesting is there are skeletons and gigantic skeletons that have been found that we know are intact, but these are in the possession of elite families. And one perfect example are the skeletons pulled out of the McKees Rocks Mound in Pennsylvania. They're still in the possession of the Carnegie Museum. And these particular skeletons, in 2010, protesters attempted to reclaim the remains under the NAGPRA law, but they were denied, they were legally denied the right to reclaim those remains for reburial because the Adena have been classified as culturally unidentifiable. Hmm. What this means is that the remains cannot be reclaimed, because no one living today from a First Nations tribe can claim descent from the Adena culture. Well, the question is, how do they know this if no extensive genetic studies have been done on Adena remains? Hmm.
0: Well, you know, I mean, it doesn't surprise me because there there is a conceit I think in in modern science that you know Homo sapiens sapiens is the only remaining species, you know, uh, uh, human species, you know, on this planet. That that everybody else, all of our you know cousins, and that uh, uh, came about, and at one time, you know, we all lived together on this planet, you know, Mm -hmm. are now gone. So I think that uh, there would be there would be this this panic within the scientific community to consider that there was um, a close relative still living with humanity
1: uh, right. right up into well I mean really modern times. Well, don't forget also that the human genome project and we talked about this before mm-hmm. has now revealed. That, for instance, you know, Europeans are up to four percent Neanderthal. Uh, uh, East Asians are, are like two to two to four percent Neanderthal and two percent Denisovan. Um, uh, Sub-Saharan Africans have no Neanderthal or Denisovan DNA at all. Um, so these ancient groups, if they weren't killed out and driven out by competition, to some extent, they were they were absorbed. Now, in, in, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, there's another, uh, hominid species that's been identified in the DNA due to the Human Genome Project that goes back to pre-hominid times. Mm. That's how old it's, it's the, it's the Y chromosome in this case. Um, so, you know, the thing is that they, that they could, where there could very well be other groups out there. That being said, if you go by the, the actual story of the Nephilim and how they came about, they are going to be totally alien in terms of part of their DNA. They're not going to, they're going to have a human lineage, and then they're going to have a lineage that is, in quotation marks, something else. Okay, which is interesting because apparently that's exactly what Melba Ketchum and some other people have found in two different studies of uh, of, of supposed Bigfoot DNA. They have found that there is a a uh, mitochondrial female mitochondrial DNA that is human, and from all over the place. Uh, you know, European, African, uh, Native American, um, you know, different samples have different, different DNA, mitochondrial DNA that is human, which would lend a lot of credence to the idea of women being abducted and used for breeding. At the same time, the other part of the DNA is classified as unknown, totally or, or, or novel, It says. In other words, it does not exist in any DNA database, and it's not related to anything else. So, this is one of the reasons I have to say that, you know, we may be looking at several mysteries that are interrelated to each other here. Does that make sense?
3: I believe they're all interrelated. Absolutely. The for me, it's my opinion that this actually does begin with genetic tampering that began in the ancient past yep. and as far as their, their modern descendants or the idea that, that these beings could live alongside of us the, the gigantic chiefs of the, the burial noun cultures uh, it's very important to, to bear in mind these people had a, a way of becoming the center of economic interest wherever they went In fact, their their earliest appearance in Europe, they appear in two places. They appear in Spain, where they're overseeing the copper mining during the Uruk period, and they appear in the Caucasus Mountains, where they're overseeing trade goods that are flowing into ancient Mesopotamia. In other words, these people are traffickers. They are economists.
1: Sure, absolutely, and think about this. They set themselves up as gods and demigods, in the ancient world, divine right of kings and all that. That way, they had their pick. They controlled the economies and they had their pick of the women when the time comes to reproduce or when they need a fresh influx of human DNA. And it's interesting because, I don't know if you've heard about this, Jason, but there's a lady, her name is Karen, I guess it's Huddes? Hoods? I'm not sure, H-U-D-E-S. But anyway, she's a former World Bank, uh, senior counsel. Former senior counsel for the world bank and she quit her job and she came out and said that a second species on our planet controls money and religion she said that this species is tall that they are bigger and more robust than we are that they have an elongated skull and that they stay hidden behind the scenes and they rule from hiding
3: I've seen those reports and what's What's fascinating is we've been working with a professional reconstruction artist to recreate what these giants in North America would have looked like while they were still alive. right And we've sent her several photographs of Adina skulls and also the measurements from a Smithsonian manuscript from the Smithsonian Vault that detailed the the measurements of the bones of a particular giant. And she's recreated the appearance of these beings as they appeared in North America. And it's very close to some of the things that I, I saw connected to that story, actually. Right, right. And in the December issue of Ancient American Magazine, issue 109, that reconstruction is going to be released to the world. So people are going to have the opportunity to actually see what these these North American giants actually looked like in the flesh. And that's Marcia K. Moore. She she's done work for Ancient Aliens, and I'm right. Forrester recreating the Paracas skulls, and she's done an amazing job of recreating what these beings look like. We've even included in the in the description. We included the actual artifacts the giant was buried with. So it's going to be a really authentic recreation. But as far as you, you're talking about the international elite when you talk about right. the World Bank, right? And we, if you'd like to talk about that further, we have some information that it's actually it's actually pretty staggering for us what we've uncovered in relation to that. Yeah, um, that's your yeah. the <laughs> the uh, well. I'm sure that you and your audience are probably familiar with the American Eugenics Society. Mm-hmm. Right now, the American Eugenics Society was a movement in North America. To turn of the last century, they wanted to exterminate people who were who they considered to be of, of lesser genetic descent. It, it was elite finance that had the full force of J.P. Right. Morgan. Carnegie and, and, and the rockefeller right. family. Act,
1: in fact, planned parenthood is a, is is a result of it to some extent.
3: Right. And yeah. we we'll actually mention them in a moment. Um yeah. the what a lot of people are unaware of is that the theories of the, fam, the the families behind the eugenic societies in the western world the theories they champion were actually very old by the 1900s. And it came from the theories of Arianism. That's what it was known by in in the mid-1800s. Right. And the most influential, the most influential theorist of the Arianist philosophy was a French aristocrat named Arthur de Gauvinou. And in 1855, in a book called The Inequality of Human Races, de Gauvinou attributed the rise of all the great civilizations of history to an Indo-European super race from the ancient past. And he lists a group of civilizations which he claimed, which he believed, were originally built by this Indo-European super race called the Aryans. And among those civilizations are the Hindu, the Egyptian, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Chinese the Proto-Celts, the prehistoric Germans, and the Alahanian North American Mound Builders. So there in 1855, you have one of the founders of scientific racism, one of the people whose doctrines informed the American eugenics movement, claiming that this prehistoric civilization in North America right. was descended from an ancient super race.
1: Well, you know, the the interesting thing is, he might have been on the right track in terms of where these beings were, where they went, where they ended up, who they influenced. But he took out of the equation the fact that historically and in terms of, of spiritual teachings, these beings were considered to be evil beings.
3: Well, to the eugenicist, evil is good and good is evil. Right, exactly. And that's why someone like him would consider them to, to be a super race, and why, at that point, scientific racism in Europe, remember he was a French aristocrat, in Europe at that point, scientific racism took a turn towards looking for this ancient Aryan Nordic race in living people. They, were, they had begun to search for traces of, of the DNA of this ancient race in people among the population. Right. And the other interesting thing about his statement, is that he used the term alahani when he described the North American mound builders. Right. What's interesting about that is this was in 1855. The American populace in 1855 did not even know yet that the Delaware Indians, when their ancestors crossed the Mississippi River and they moved into the region, they encountered a race of giants that they referred to as the alahani. Wow. And here's That's a French wild. aristocrat and a eugenicist who knew by 1855 the actual name of these people. We know they didn't right. call themselves the Adena.
1: Yeah, we know they sources. didn't
3: call themselves. Yeah. That's correct. There had to be yeah. sources. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something 18...
1: interesting about that. I mean, you talk about him having sources, and we look at at how, you know... uh uh, mysterious people have always influenced history. You had the, the strange guy they called the Tibetan who would visit Hitler and absolutely terrify him. And, you know, Hitler said, I have seen the new man. He is intrepid and cruel. I was afraid of him. And he was striving to recreate this same race, you know, out of terror more than anything else. And then you have, uh, Napoleon was in visit, was visited by a guy they called the Red Man because they said that he looked like a Native American. So, you know, these things, it's as if they're these, these people behind the scenes and there always have been and they're influencing the fates of, of of kingdoms and empires and and uh, finance and everything else and you know if you think about it if you go back and look at the, the giant goliath who was an outcast he lived with the philistines but he was not really a philistine um the etymology of his name means to go into exile or to be exiled Okay. And then he had several sons, of course, who, who were all killed eventually. But they were called the Giants of Gath. But, you know, could it be that, that the only time we get to glimpse these beings is, is in like a Goliath type situation where for some reason some of these guys have been outcast from their, their parent society, you know, cause his name literally was the outcast. So, you know, and so then, and then we get a glimpse that there's this other species out there. Behind the scenes,
3: well, the the book of Joshua in in chapter eleven it it describes how Joshua destroyed all the giants of a specific Anakim tribe, except for one who was around twelve feet tall, and that giant escaped to Gath. Right. And Goliath was actually a descendant of that giant, so he was literally a descendant of the last outcast of the Anakim tribe.
1: Right. Um, so, so the thing is, though, that, that, there's got to be a larger network of these beings. You know, it's not uh, like- There
3: was a large network.
1: Yeah, that's, that's they, they have certain. To, they, there have to be some who are, who are sort of cut off and said, okay, you're on your own. So, you know, it's just like anything else. We have factions, you know, among human beings, and it, it may explain some of the things that are, the, the conflicting accounts of encounters with various types of anomalous uh, phenomena, where it seems like, well, this group told us this, well, this other group says this. Well, it could be because they may have a common origin, but they're working against each other. They're manipulating us in, in to different ends. Does that make sense?
3: Well, the elite on this planet in the modern era, uh, there's a great example there because it wasn't until around 1954 that they were universally working together to the same end. Uh, the, the network that these beings had formed in the past, the, there's a period... During the early Uruk period, under a king named Enmerkar, who is the biblical Nimrod, where it seems that everyone was universally working towards a single purpose, but then after about 3000 BC, the local lords and the local rulers, after the collapse of the central authority, began to carve out their own territories and kingdoms. Um, the, the connections between the discovery of these types of beings and the elite class of the modern world, it, it's possible to detect it throughout history. In 1890, another prominent proponent of eugenics named Georges Faucher de la Fouge discovered the remains of a 12-foot-tall skeleton at the lower level of a Bronze Age burial mound in southern France at Castle New. These remains were reviewed for years by anthropologists in Europe and America. They were universally accepted as those of a gigantic human. And you can actually read online, you can read the August 1890 issue of Popular Science for a full analysis of those remains. And what a lot of people don't know is that LaPage was a proponent of political socialism, and he supported... The Aryanist Goals of Scientific Racism. Mm. And he's one of the most famous proponents of scientific racism of all time. In fact, he was so vociferous that he was eventually expelled from the French University Circuit. But this is another case that by the 1900s, these people that were involved in this Aryanist type of research and eugenics were discovering these gigantic skeletons.
2: man
1: well, you know the thing is that uh, uh, like you said they were they were kind of fragmented until very recently, and it does seem like they 've been working together uh, for the most part and that 's why I think that some of the things that people are don 't really realize what's going on, but some of the uh, uh, the one world government stuff that we 're being shoved' being shoved in our throat, the conformer else say, you know uh, free thought, free speech assaults uh, all this stuff is now sort of um concentrated uh, coordinated and it doesn't seem like anybody's really fighting back very much because they it just seems like all these forces are working together um to to bring about some sort of in-game goal that they have in mind mm-hmm.
0: Well, Mike, let uh, let me have you uh, hold on to that thought here because it's time for us to go to our break. So, uh, this is, everyone out there, you are listening to the Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. Our guest tonight is Jason Cheryl, and I'm Tim Schwartz with Mike Mott. Stay tuned; we will be right back. So, stay tuned. I already said that, didn't I? <laughs> 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 um, listen,
1: Jason, I, I'm sorry. I...
4: I've been blue, searching for what we'll call the truth. Any more they say i There
1: That's
4: 954-973-3374 Or visit KeyInformation.com spells spells, spells. here for the first time in the inspired pages of bible spells reverend william orobello unveils a concealed code hidden throughout the holy scriptures that can bring you an abundance of money personal success as well as love good luck healing happiness and protection of your home as well as loved ones more important than the bible code are nostradamus's prophecies this secret code was revealed to reverend orobello during an encounter with divine supernatural beings who changed his life forever now you can learn this unique system yourself to materialize realize all of your personal needs and influence others order william orabello's bible spells from amazon.com or get your copy a free bizarre bizarre subscription as well as a bonus companion dvd for twenty dollars with free shipping and handling by calling 646-331-6777 646-331-6777 you <laughs> Join the club that gives you stuff. Hey, thanks! Radio Loyalty. Here's how it works. Just click on the Radio Loyalty banner right now and sign up. Then, you keep on listening like you already do. But now you earn points. Those points add up, and you can trade them in for stuff in the Radio Loyalty Store. Earn more points by sharing your station with friends on Facebook and Twitter, answering surveys, and by using the apps in the New Players App
3: Store. Pretty simple, right?
2: Radio Loyalty.
3: Click that banner to join now.
2: Only in the forest can you see this. <laughs> But nothing beats the moment you see
4: that. Cool! That's your child's eyes opening up to a world of possibilities. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. And you might just see this. Visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Outer Edge Radio with William Michael Mott and Tim Schwartz. Only on PSN Radio. Radio.
1: The outer edge. Uh, we were having a really interesting, in-depth conversation before we went to break, and and we're talking to Jason about these Nephilim and so forth. And I, I had said something about there seemed to be an agenda in place to to uh, push a certain um, new society on the world. Um, you know, by these people behind the scenes, whatever these people are, that they have this 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 concept, and to me, it's almost like they 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 see the world as their farm, and that we're the livestock. That's the nearest I could think. And I think that a lot of people have picked up on that. I think Richard Shaver kind of touched on that, and uh, um, Charles Fort definitely did when he said, "We are property." You know, um, I think that's how these these elites and their hidden masters see us we are property to them they they think that this is just a big resource pool that they can use and something that we were talking about earlier we mentioned uh we were talking about the the Aryan hypothesis and and uh inferior races and and that kind of stuff and and uh um that people don't realize so many things have been influenced by that and one of the things that was mentioned was Planned Parenthood of course Margaret Sanger was a big pal of Hitler's and uh and was a big was always hobnobbing with these same elites and she basically had made statements about exterminating the negro race and, and and things of this nature and people do not realize to this day for some reason I can't comprehend why but they don't realize that planned parenthood is actually a eugenics experiment designed to eradicate certain segments of society and it has been doing so uh, what are your thoughts on that jason yeah.
3: Earlier I mentioned the the aristocrats and the scientific racists from Europe who had discovered that this gigantic race of world elites had existed in the deep past. And in the in the early twentieth century the goal was to isolate people that they believed could have traces of this race's DNA and their blood in society and to eradicate other races that they consider to be lower. And in order to understand Margaret Sanger, we first need to discuss the Theosophical Society. Um, the Theosophical Society, the founder, Helena Blavatsky, actually adopted D'Agobinou's theoretical divisions of hierarchy and race. And in her book, The Secret Doctrine, where the Aryan is described as a superior root race, she actually was building on the architecture that was laid out by de Gavineau. Now, this doctrine was inserted into the German concept of Aryanism by Gido von List, Georg Lieventhels, and Rudolf von Sabotendorf, and Bobatsky's Theosophical Society actually included none other than Margaret Sanger as a member. In fact, Sanger gave speeches at the headquarters of the society in India, and in August of 1936, she delivered a speech to the society where she championed birth control and population engineering as the primary methods by which a new race could be created. She worked closely with the American Eugenics Society She advocated mass sterilizations, and she explicitly targeted minority groups. And what's very interesting about the Theosophical Society is that in Isis Unveiled, Helena Blavatsky openly identified the mound builders as the biblical Nephilim. There's a commentary in the book on two gigantic skeletons found in burial mounds in Clay County, Missouri, and she discusses the fact that these skeletons were the product of the union of fallen angels with human women, and she mentions that it was done through scientific methods. Hmm.
1: So as in in gene splicing?
3: That seems to be what she believed. I can only report on, on what these people themselves have said and what's on record. Right. But that seems to be what she's implying in ISIS Unveiled. I think it's very interesting that these people, in their writings, and, and going all the way back to the early scientific racists, acknowledge the existence of these gigantic beings at the same time that institutions around the world have denied to the public that they existed.
2: Wow. Interesting
1: stuff. And, and so, basically... When we look, it's funny how things go come full circle. Because with the latest videos and scandals, where they literally are discussing harvesting living infants and preserving them alive as long as they can, so that they can take their brains while they're still alive, and stuff like this. I mean, we're talking about the same kind of ancient atrocities that were going on, uh, as described in the Book of Enoch and, and the Book. Book of Jubilees and other, other ap- apocryphal texts where, um, you know, th- where they were basically treating human beings like a resource, like a genetic resource. And, and now they're doing, now it's going on again. You know, where do these, all these materials actually end up? Well, a lot of them are being sent to these, uh, research facilities. And what's the goal of the research facilities? Uh, longevity, you know, so that the elite are gonna, will benefit from these materials.
3: That's actually been a part of archaeology in North America for a very long time. Uh, I mentioned the head of the Bureau of Ethnology, J.W. Powell, who oversaw the excavation of of the burial mounds in North America earlier for the Smithsonian. And what a lot of people don't know about J.W. Powell that we've, we've managed to dig up is that Powell, by 1879 was one of the first transhumanists. J.W. Powell was a little-known philosopher and evolutionist. He was a Darwinian, but he was a neo-Lamar Khan Darwinian. These types of Darwinians believed that man could attain a higher state of existence and attain the next step of evolution of his own will. And in 1878, Powell formed an organization called the Cosmos Club, And the stated goal of that club was the advancement of its members in science, literature, and art. Some of the names that that appear on the membership list of the Cosmos Club since it was founded in 1878 include Henry Kissinger, Nelson Rockefeller, Theodore Roosevelt, Herbert Hoover, Woodrow Wilson, and Vannevar Bush. Vannevar Bush was the co-founder of Raytheon, He was also the head of the Carnegie Institution in 1939. As chairman of the National Defense Research Committee, Bush actually headed up the application of advanced science to warfare, and when he became the head of the American Eugenics Society, he shifted their program from one of isolation and destruction of minorities to an all-out assault on every living person who was not a part of the 0.1%. So that period of time in 1939 under Vannevar Bush is the point where the world that we're living in today was actually born with the uh, the poison air and the poison water microwave radiation. Right.
1: And, and that's the thing, the whole dichotomy of left versus right, the whole uh, Democrats versus Republicans is just a Machiavellian uh, shell game because... The elites are going to rule regardless of the of the of the puppets they put into place
3: well, it's bread and circuses, of course <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's bread and circuses i mean if if you look at the political architecture of the Western world today it it's very easy to really to detect where the power is. If the most powerful Democrats and Republicans are all part of the same club, then that club is probably where the power is. Yeah, and we we know who those clubs are.
2: Yeah, you do, you do.
1: Um, you want to talk about them? Do you think that these that these nonhuman elites are are somewhere lurking behind the scenes at some of these big meetings that these clubs have?
3: Well. I don't know if these elites, the, the people that are actually running this planet today, I don't know if, if we encountered them, if they would seem non-human to us. I think that at a certain point, the elite lineages from the ancient past probably interbred with, with women who were, who were of the average stock to the point that they may be indistinguishable from us today. Right. But they may still have the talents and characteristics of their forebears, which, as we were talking about earlier, is resource exploitation and total economic control.
1: Well, if you look at what the lady uh, from the World Bank had to say, it could be that we're talking about a hierarchy here, just like uh, uh, supposedly in the secret societies you work your way up and then you learn the, the very... Top mystery, which is that you're worshiping something you probably shouldn't be worshiping, and you never even knew it. You know, you thought you were doing good things, and then you find this, this out. Uh, it could be that that the elites you're talking about that look uh, totally like the rest of us, that even they answer to a higher, more pure strain of the uh, of, of the others, who, as 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 Karen Huds or Hudes or whatever, as she said, they they remain behind the scenes because they do look different than we do.
3: Hmm. Well, it's it's interesting to know, though, also, that the, the phenomenon of, of these cultures we're, we're describing with the earthworks and the burial mounds and the, the cranial deformation that they practiced, the, this phenomenon did not end with the Bronze Age, and it didn't end with the Iron Age. A lot of people aren't aware of the fact that the Merovingians from which a lot of the Venetian nobility descended. Yeah. The Merovingians were still burying their dead in burial mounds up to 500 A.D., and they still had not yet converted to Christianity. So there's actually a continuation of these ancient chiefly lineages all the way up into the Middle Ages. And many of our elites today, many of the, the elite families today, are literally descended from these older lineages.
0: Interesting. You know, i'll I'll make a I'll make a comment here, and uh, I know Jason, this this probably is going to go outside of uh, your your field of research a bit, but you know, it, you're talking about. Uh, uh, you know, like uh, uh, elites who who may still um, hold some of the physical characteristics of uh, their ancestors, uh, you know, uh, gigantism. Uh, it, it makes me think about there was a um, a UFO contactee case that took place in italy in the 1950s and it it's it was called the uh, the friendship uh, Mm -hmm. case and uh, and it's it's really it it hasn't been heard too much here in the united states but um, one of the characteristics of this contactee case is that it lasted for a number of years and there were a number of different people who were involved in it but the uh uh, the 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 so-called Aliens, and I'll put uh, uh, quotation marks around that. Uh, when they had face-to-face meetings, they were described as being uh, uh, nine to ten feet tall and uh, looked perfectly human. Uh, spoke perfect, uh, uh, you know, Italian and and other languages as well. And uh, there is uh, one photograph that uh, was taken of uh, one of these beings and uh he's uh, he's wearing you know like a, a, a shorts and it looks like tennis shoes and you know just like kind of like a summer shirt but you can tell from the photograph that he's extremely tall this is a yeah. very very large person. However, he does not have the physical characteristics of say like a, a, a normal person who is suffering from gigantism. you know, I mean doesn't, no, he's he's, he's proportional he's proportional, right, right and, and, and looks absolutely healthy. So, you know, it, it just it, it just makes me wonder whether or not this is just, you know, another one of these um a uh, 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 Trojan horse, maybe. Nah, no, I don't know. That's not. That's not quite the wor- right word. But just, just another game being played for you know social engineering of some kind that may be uh, being conducted uh, uh, by these uh, uh, secret elite groups.
3: Well, Greg Little, Doctor Greg Little, uh, in in 2014 published an article with AP Magazine where he statistically debunked the possibility that the gigantic remains from North American burial mounds uh, he, he debunked the possibility that that it could be a case of gigantism or even that it was just the, the really tall members of the population uh, as far as the proportions that you mentioned the physical descriptions in the anthropological literature we have of these gigantic skeletons Note how powerful they were. It describes that the muscles were very powerful, and you could see the the marks on these bones from the attachments of the powerful muscles. There's one. Uh, there's one particular giant from Charleston, West Virginia, where the shoulder blades are measured 19 inches across, and it's compared with the height. So these were very well proportioned individuals, as as you're describing. They were not the product of any type of disease or disorder. So we know that this was a form of genetic inheritance.
0: Well, it also also makes me think of um, uh, um, uh, the paracas skulls. You had mentioned those uh, uh, earlier. And I mean, there there is an example of, of of bones that I mean anybody can see now. Unlike uh, the bones that were uncovered in North America that have uh, since disappeared for whatever reasons, now we have the Paracas skulls, which are I mean clearly elongated and 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 not from uh, 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 infant boarding. I mean, you know, the, the, these these skulls are overly large. There's a lot more material <laughs> than than you would get from just uh, babies uh, uh, being boarded. I mean, have you done any research on uh, those
5: skulls?
3: Uh, I'm really. <laughs> it's good that you mentioned that because I've got some material to share with you that pertains to the Paracas skulls. Um, the The basic cranial type of the North American Adena is distinctly different from what we see in the Paracas skulls. But in our research, we have found some instances of high anomalies that we can compare to the Paracas skulls. Um, in a paper detailing the skeletal remains of a group of adena burials from Kentucky at the Wright mounds, there's an analysis of a skull which is noted as having no sagittal suture. The, the suture is described as fused without a trace, While the coronal and landoid sutures are open Uh, This is one of the the features that people describe from the paracas skulls in Peru Mm -hmm. And it's actually also been noted on crania from western European mounds In 1846, at a mound at Five Wells Hill, Thomas Bateman discovered three crania Which he described as boat-shaped And one of these was noted as very long and having no sagittal suture it says in the description that it was closed with no trace. Uh, there, there were skulls desi- described as boat-shaped encountered in the Canal Valley as well uh, at a, a site near Mount Carbon. In the 1800s, a captain named William Page was overseeing construction of a railroad, and he discovered an ancient burial ground where one of the burials was that of a male estimated at about 25 years of age and the crania of this burial is detailed as canoe shaped and sharp from the front and back long and very narrow and william page said that it was a fearful sight in life so there is a precedent for some of these anomalies being present in north america in the field notes of the excavating agent of the Smithsonian at Charleston. There's a skull from the Great Smith Mound, and its deformation, as described in the notes, is Peruvian. Hmm. And what's interesting is that in the 1960s, the state archaeologist of West Virginia, Edward McMichael, was able to go into the Smithsonian and observe material that was still on file from Charleston, and he described one of the skulls as long, heavy, and pathologically deformed. So, there are certain rare crania which exhibit a pathological nature, which is similar to the Paracas skulls, and it's also found in British burial mounds.
1: So you have to wonder if they have no they have no suture how did their muscles attach to the top of their head. I know you have a sagittal crest to some extent. You know, Bigfoot has a sagittal crest, which is exaggerated. But it could be that there's like cartilage or something instead because I think that they're they're related. Where the sutures come together is where you end up having, where where the muscles, it's also where the muscles attach. Does that make sense? So... It's, a, it's very strange, for sure.
3: Well, it is. And, and like I said, these, these types of anomalies are rare among North American giants and, and mound builders. And I understand it's very common among the, the Paracas skulls. But there is a mound building culture known as the Kapina. And the Capina mound builders, they were a legacy group which essentially descended from the Adena. They're primarily located in the Tennessee Valley region in northern Alabama, and in the Athena people number one, Webb and Snow published photographs of several Capena skulls, and there's one of them that it is distinctly a Paracas type skull, and it's from a young child. Mm-hmm. So we know that there were there were some individuals in North America with at least some of the the anomalies associated with the Paracas people but that shouldn't surprise us because what we know today is the Paracas skull has actually been found on the island of Malta, it's been found in Russia, it's been found in the Ukraine, Iraq Iran and usually when it's found in the old world it's associated with a burial mound
1: hmm wow Interesting stuff, for sure. Um, have you had any indication that your uh, research is ruffling any feathers?
3: Well, um, the, we've only published a few articles so far. We wanted to make sure that we knew what we were talking about before we set out to writing. Right. Um, but... The the research we're doing, it's not just a, a collection of, of giant accounts that we intend to publish. We intend to publish a, a book next year that is going to restore these beings to, to 7,000 years' worth of history. We had to draw a line under it at 7,000 years because we could continue researching for another two or three years. There's so much evidence that we had to, to limit ourselves, but... When it comes to describing the motive for why this is hidden from the public, we expect that it will ruffle a few feathers. Because this is not just a a cover-up of gigantic skeletons. This is an obfuscation of prehistory generally. And we believe that it's been stolen from us by a group of people who consider it to be their personal property.
1: Right, right, exactly. Well, well, like I said, they 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 think of us as just livestock on their farm. You know, how dare we try to find out what's going on and 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 stand up for ourselves?
3: Well, that's exactly right. I have a we have a newspaper article here from Princeton Union in eighteen ninety six that describes how a, a gigantic skeleton that was discovered at the McKee's Rocks Mound in Pennsylvania, was put into a glass case at the Carnegie Museum, and they held a ceremony where Andrew Carnegie came in and personally viewed the skeleton. And this was done with great pomp and and lots of ceremony, and, and the media reported on it. And yet we're living at a point now where the establishment denies that these skeletons were ever found at all. So right. it appears to me that archaeology in North America is essentially something that's designed for public consumption. Mm. And the Smithsonian Institution basically functions the same way that the FDA or the EPA does, except that their job is to regulate our understanding of prehistory.
0: Yep well now that uh that leads to uh the question that i that I was wanting to to ask you jason um uh, skeptics and critics of all of this say that you know, like the the, the newspaper reports that, that that came out at the time of, of a lot of these discoveries, especially in the uh, uh, the 19th century, were basically you know hoaxes. That uh, that that news, the majority of newspapers. I mean, were not above uh, doing hoaxes, and in fact, you know, they uh, practically all of them. <laughs> Uh, 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 did this is just uh, just a way of having a, a, a bit of fun, and that there were no scientific journals that ever reported on these discoveries. Now I know that you have been spending a lot of time uh, uh, doing archival research you know in such journals i mean you know what do you have to say about that i mean you know uh, are are these uh, do these critics have no idea what they're talking about have uh, have you uh, found that uh, that that these old uh, scientific journals actually uh, did accurate reportings on these discoveries
3: absolutely um in the 20th century the policy of denial got underway during the reign of Ailes hertelich as the Curator of Anthropology at the Smithsonian. And during Herdlichka's reign, the public still recalled that that gigantic skeletons were basically pulled out of their backyards for over a hundred years. And when questions were put to the Smithsonian as to what happened to the skeleton, Herdlichka was one of the first individuals to publicly denounce that they'd ever existed at all. And That's where the policy of denial really got underway with the Smithsonian and the university circuits. However, in the 20th century, they were rediscovered by archaeologists. One was found at at the Dover Mound in Kentucky by William S. Webb. You can read all about it in the Dover Mound report. And this individual was just over seven feet tall. Another one was found uh, here in West Virginia at the Cresat Mound in 1959 by Don Dragu, the archaeologist working for the Carnegie Museum. The skeleton was another one of the seven-foot giants, and it's actually photographed in his book, Mounds for the Dead. And the, the works of William S. Webb and Don Dragoo. The the Adena people number one and two by Webb and Mounds for the Dead by Dragu go into great detail describing the physical type and anthropology of these gigantic individuals. And in Mounds for the Dead, Don Dragu wrote that two outstanding traits have been noted repeatedly for this group. One is the massive and protruding chin. The second is the large size of many of the males and some of the females. A male of six feet was common, and some approaching seven feet have been found. And Dragoo was one of the first to determine that these gigantic skeletons represented an elite that existed within the society who managed to pass down their genetic information for hundreds of years among themselves. So these these giants are already on record. They've already been acknowledged. They've been photographed and measured. And this did not just happen in the 1800s. It also occurred in the 20th century, where they were excavated by professional archaeologists who went on record describing their remains.
1: Wow, that's pretty wild. So basically, uh, um, we may be we may be looking at. Uh, at the beings who are behind this whole idea that some people are better than others, that some people are destined to rule, that some people are divinely entitled, these beings may be the, the source of that, uh, that sentiment.
3: Well, that's certainly what the Book of Enoch uh, seems to imply, and it's definitely present in the Sumerian concept of royalty. Right. Remember, the, the, the paradigm that, that we're trying to present It's based around the concept that this is something that spread from Mesopotamia to the rest of the world. And the Mesopotamian concept of royalty is that the royalty are descended from the gods, and that's why they have a right to own human beings as property. Hmm. And to follow that up, the concept of a slave trade only enters the prehistory of Europe, with the movement of these mound-building peoples out of the Caucasus region, so it may be that the the very notion that human beings can be owned as property spread from Mesopotamia and through these other cultures.
1: Wow! So basically, the whole idea of he was his livestock, yeah, became what we what we call slavery.
3: Essentially, yes. And I just can't emphasize enough, and this has a lot of bearing on us today, the archaeological record in Europe and the United States clearly shows that the concept of the chief and the elite lineage, it always emerges with the idea that someone needs to control the distribution of resources. And that is precisely what happened in the late archaic period in North America, the archaeologists refer to these individuals as big men. Sometimes they refer to them as prospectors. But at the end of the day, what they did was somehow they convinced the rest of the population to allow them to control the distribution of essential resources. And the ways that they got people to serve their interest was they would give people prestige goods, it may be a certain type of a gorget or some type of regalia. Yeah. And then the people that received those prestige goods were entitled to more resources. Hmm. And that is very similar to the model that the Western world is operating under today. Yep. We in debt, we indeb ourselves to a, to a system that is completely predatory in exchange for material possessions that give us prestige. Yes, we do, <laughs> so there's nothing new under the sun mm.
0: <laughs> so uh concerning the uh um the north american uh uh, uh i suppose uh, um, group whatever happened to them i mean did they did they move on were they were they killed out uh you know any ideas
3: well I can offer you my interpretation and I respect other people who have completely different viewpoints on the subject, but this this is just this is the viewpoint from where I am from from the literature that we've reviewed at a certain point the the society that was being constructed here in North America got so huge and was overseeing so much of the continent that the bureaucracy grew to the point of being unsustainable by the people. And there, there was a bureaucratic group chosen from among the basic population to serve the interests of the elites. Mm-hmm. And this bureaucratic group, at a certain point, got so large that they, too, started interring their dead in their own unique types of burial mounds with their own regalia, and that is what archaeologists refer to as the Hopewell culture. Hmm. At around 500 A.D., this massive network in North America got so large that it was unsustainable to the population, and there may have been uprisings, And there's also evidence that at this time period, warfare began to increase in the region, the Ohio River Valley. And I believe that this is the point where history and legend meet, because it's entirely possible that the ancestors of the Cherokee and the Lenni-Lenape, moving from the west, actually entered this territory at that time period when the system was weak, and may have initiated warfare upon these individuals that were controlling North America. And that's certainly what the native record says. Hmm. The Cherokee referred to these beings as the Anikatani. And according to their history, the Aniketani were an elite group of warriors and priests who were ruling over the, this section of America, and eventually the Anikatani began taking wives from among the, the braids and the braids rose up and destroyed them. Hmm. And in some of that, there's commentary that suggests the Anikatani were mound builders. So there are many, many native traditions about warfare with these individuals.
1: Yeah, and, and again, here you yeah. have them, uh, Having to ha- find a source to reproduce with, among human women, they're gonna have to, uh, that's something that they apparently have to have. They, even if it's every other generation or whatever it is, but they, they have to do it. And I think it has led to a lot of legends about, uh, uh, giants and trolls and monsters that, that kidnap, uh, uh, people who are of, of, uh, let me say, very fur, at, at the prime of their fertility. Okay. Um,
3: something to think about absolutely well at point in history when when these conflicts happened and, and when what what we believe was a, a massive societal collapse happened occurred after that there were legacy cultures which developed from regions that may have originally been peripheral to the original civilization and these legacy cultures become visible in the Mississippian and Southeastern Ceremonial Complex. And at the time that, that the European explorers were coming into the Americas in 1400s, 1500s, the peoples of these complexes still existed. And one group that was encountered was the Timucua. Now, the Timucua were present in the region around Florida and Georgia, Uh, Timucua still had giants among them at the time that the French encountered them, and they were still practicing infant sacrifice and cannibalism and different things of that nature by that time period. And this is in all likelihood a legacy group, which came out of the original cultures that we're discussing. But what's very interesting to me is that on Jekyll Island where the Federal Reserve was created there was a Timucua burial mound which occupied the space of what is now the Rockefeller vacation house (laughs) and the central parlor the central parlor of that house which is where the elites met to discuss the founding of the Federal Reserve is built right over top of an altar of this Timucua group
1: man that is crazy (laughs) So basically, that 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 actual structure is still probably sitting on the bones and remains of some of these some of these uh, uh, these Nephilim ancients.
3: Well, considering that some sites in North America, like the Elizabeth Mounds in Illinois, Elizabeth Mounds in Illinois, these cultures were burying their dead at that site from 4,300 BC all the way down to about 700 AD. Hmm. It's difficult to say how many corporate sites in North America actually are sitting on top of the bones of some of these beings.
1: Mm. Wow!
0: It makes you wonder whether or not you know it's it's they consider it some kind of like spiritual significance to do that.
3: Well, remember that the forces of the, the chiefs of these groups rose to power through regulating economic exchange and that is precisely what the elite meant at Jekyll Island to do. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. And, and it's also interesting that you know a lot of these same sites now uh, especially like the uh, uh, old courthouses and other old facilities like that that are built on these these mounds they're they're alleged to have high incidence of paranormal activity.
2: Oh yeah.
3: Well there's a specific site in Charleston where a burial mound excavated by the Smithsonian contained two gigantic skeletons that were in a seated position with their arms raised, and they were holding a stone basin with the burnt remains of human beings in the basin. And beneath these two skeletons was an altar, similar to the one I mentioned from Jekyll Island. And this mound actually still stands today, but it's very interesting to me, that even though I'm not a paranormal investigator, that's someone else's field. But it's very interesting that the area where that mound is located, a lot of people that I've met who live there discuss encounters with what I've seen referred to as the shadow people or the shadow man.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so it could be that, that Well, I, I don't. I mean, I'm assuming that you know that that the the Rephaim and and other. Uh, unclean spirits of the Bible the Dybbukes and so forth they are actually believed to, to come from several groups uh, the pre-Adamic races that were destroyed previously but also all the giants destroyed in the flood which could have been in the millions okay um, in, the, in the great cataclysm um, it's very clear that, that demons are not fallen angels but that the demons as they're called the unclean spirits are the spirits of the Nephilim because they're not human that's correct Yeah, they're not human, and they're not fallen angels. They're trapped somewhere in between, and all they do is roam about because they have no place.
3: Well, in the apocryphal text you refer to, they're referred to as clouds. It says that they will be clouds on the face of the earth. And I think the tradition is that had Noah not prayed, because there were so many of these spirits right after the flood, Right. Had Noah not petitioned God, um, there would be many more on the earth, but God only left a tenth of them to, to roam the planet. Right. So there is a, a long standing tradition of paranormal activity attached to these types of beings, and it, it's definitely a biblical concept.
1: It is. It, and, and it does make sense because, uh, you know, they, they long to experience a human or humanoid form again. Uh, They don't take part in the resurrection unless it's just to be, you know, to stand in judgment. So um, this is the reason that they they possess people, for instance, is because they want to experience again something that they've lost and they will never have.
0: All right, uh, Jason, uh, I'm going I'm to have to interrupt this, uh, this this thought here, Jason, because we are almost out of time, and I want to give you the opportunity to let our audience know about uh, uh, where they can find out more about you online. Do you have a website? Uh, are you, do you have any speaking engagements coming up in the near future, uh, books, uh, anything like that?
3: Okay, if you're interested in our work, you can find us online at alahanymounds.com, it's a-L-L-E-G-H-E-N-Y-Mounds.com. I am also on Facebook, and we have a large article coming out in the December issue of Ancient American Magazine, issue 109, and we're also working on a book for release in 2016, which is going to rewrite 7,000 years of history and reincorporate the discovery of these beings into world
0: history. Uh, do, do you have a working title or a, a title yet for that book?
3: We do not yet have a, a permanent title for the book. We're kicking around some ideas, but since it's not yet copyrighted, we...
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say.
2: Yeah. Okay. If you just not, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I,
1: I do want you to keep us uh, informed because I, I will be inter- interested in seeing it and having you back on. Oh, definitely.
3: Well, certainly. I'll send you a copy. Uh, when it
1: comes out. Good. Send, send us a copy because we're like three, uh, three states away from each
3: other.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the joys of Skype.
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things that we're going to be doing with the website is we're going to post all of our resources on this website. And we're going to train people to do this type of work wherever in the country they may live so that new people can add their voices to this movement to reclaim history. So, that's something else that we're really looking forward to
0: all right, fantastic. Well, unfortunately, guys, uh we have to uh, end it here as we are completely out of time. uh Jason Gerald, thank you very much for being our guest tonight on the outer yep. edge. really appreciate it, and hope you can come back again in the near future.
1: Thanks a lot, man. We appreciate it for sure. Thanks for having me
0: all right, so Mike uh another uh, great show tonight so we need to wrap it up so to everyone out uh, uh, listening thank you for uh, tuning in and be sure to tune again tune in again next week for another fascinating program so from all of us here good night <laughs>